I'm very uh, pleased to see everybody. A little overwhelmed. Uh, all so many faces um, of alumni that I either know you or know your name or know your face, but people that were back uh, in the schools back when my husband and I were students at Chappelle's and Midrash at Rachel. Um, and even before that, and recent alumni, it's just like a wonderful, wonderful gathering of people from all around the globe. Um, and so I will start by, first of all, just expressing my Hakar Satov to Rabbi Willig for so generously giving of his time tonight. Um, I probably shouldn't say that, but he's been so generous with his time and really offered to stay on on the call with us almost all night. So we won't do that to him and we won't do it to you. Um, and we plan to end about 930. We'll have to um, wind down. And of course, we know it's a very long program and breaks the all the Zoom rules. So if anybody needs to leave early, we totally understand the program is being recorded and um will have a good link to send out uh, in the next couple of days so that you can review um, anything that you missed um <clears throat> before we get started with the program that we're all anxious for i do just want to say a couple of quick things um first of all we got amazing questions from our alumni and i think all of us that um, saw the questions were quite impressed, uh, in some ways almost taken aback, but not really surprised by the quality of thought that comes from uh, our the range of our alumni. The many, many questions that we got, we fielded, we tried to sort of combine and put together questions to be able to answer as many as we could. Obviously, we will not get through all of them tonight. That being said, they were important and your questions are important to us. So after tonight's talk, if you have additional questions, please be in touch with me. I know you all have my email. I'll put it in the chat, um, but I will help to facilitate getting them answered by our faculty. Um, and, and I'm very happy to do that. The other couple things I just always wanna let people know is that we have this wonderful offering We'll try to keep going with these types of programs. Hopefully people are over their Zoom fatigue and are happy to come on a Zoom now every once in a while. It's a wonderful opportunity for us. But in the meantime, on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, we try to make as much Torah content as we can available to all of you. Um, I encourage people to read through the weekly newsletter that we send out, Hashavua, and we send out now to Midrashat Rachel alumni a special uh, newsletter once a month called Hachodesh. I hope you've all had a chance to enjoy it. In there, you will see links to ongoing shiurim that we make available from inside the Bate Midrash. We also record the schmooze every week and send it out. Um, we have many live offerings, chaburas, and shiurim both for the men and for the women that are available and listed there on the newsletters and of course on our website. All of these shiurim uh, we send out links for, but they can also be found on a very special podcast called the Chappelle's Virtual Beit Midrash. So if you haven't visited our podcast on your favorite podcast platform, I encourage you all to do that. You'll be, you'll be really surprised. It can almost feel like you're back at Chappelle's or Midrash at Rachel. Um, and one last announcement for our Israeli alumni, we um, are very much looking forward to seeing those of you that can be together in person um, 
December 31st. We will send out details about the program and the event, but we hope as many of you that are around and in the area will be able to join us as possible. Um, Okay, so I thank all of you for joining us. It's wonderful to see you. I thank the Rosh Yeshiva for putting together this wonderful program. I would be remiss if I didn't wish a special mazel tov to Rabbi Fisher, whom all of you know, who is making a wedding tonight and, uh, and couldn't be here for that good reason. And um, with that, I'd like to turn things over to my colleague, Rabbi Matt Levy. Uh, Matt is the newest member of our staff, and um, I think I'll let him introduce himself. So much, Ms. Margolis. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Matt Levy. I am a recruiter for Chappelle's, and I'll tell you why I say a recruiter in just a moment. But for just to give you a big, a little bit of a background, I had the scoot of learning at Chappelle's for about three and a half years, and uh, during that time. I also met my wife, who happens to be the current cook's daughter. So I have a tremendous amount of Hakar Satov to Chappelle's. And actually, after that, I went on to get my smicha from Yeshiva University. So I'm honored to be in the virtual presence of my Rebbe, Rabbi Mordechai Willis. Um, I'm addressing you right now for two main reasons. Um, first and foremost, I want you all to know that most of the students at Chappelle's currently came to Chappelle's by way of an alum. And so to put in the forefront of your mind how important it is to reach out to maybe people in your community, friends, uh, uh, children of friends, whomever, anybody who might be interested in learning in Israel, please keep it in your mind. And I would encourage you to reach out to them. And if you're not comfortable doing that, then reach out to me and I can reach out to them. Uh, so those are the two things that I want you to know. The one that most of our students who are currently at Chappelle's came to Chappelle's by way of other alumni like you. And although the yeshiva is growing and is in a wonderful, lively shape, we're always looking for more students. So to keep that in your mind, both Chappelle's and MRC, and then to reach out to them. Um, lastly, I would welcome Rabbi Shaya Karlinski, our Rosh Yeshiva, who not only is a phenomenal top premier educator, uh, and that we all know from our side of, of, of learning. But now that I'm on the other side, I, being an employee of Chabot, I also get to see that he is truly a tremendous um, uh, director and a facilitator uh, as the Rosh Yeshiva, Rosh Yeshiva Rabbi Shaya Karlinsky. Okay, so good evening to everybody. And again, it's a great honor to have uh, Rosh Yeshiva Rabbi Willig. Um, I, I, don't, I just want to say one word that I think is very important um, that really shows the caring of Rabbi Willig for the modern Shilas and the way that he deals with it. I'm not sure how many of you know that the uh, issue of prenup agreements was always very controversial in the from world. And Rabbi Willig understood that there is a serious problem. Um, and he spent years working with all of the gedolim and all of the poskim to come up with what is today considered the uh, almost universal, I mean, nothing can be universal in the Haredi world, in the from world, but outside of the extremes, it is universally considered the gold standard of a prenup agreement. Again, because he realized there's a problem and the problem needs to be solved, but it needs to be solved uh, with pure complete fidelity to halacha. And with that introduction, we're going to go into the questions. But I think maybe I'll ask Rabbi Willig just to say a couple of words about himself and about his approach to all of these questions 
modern issues. Uh, and again, the issue that we raised, how do you uh, combine innovation and modernity with absolute fidelity to our Messiah? Thank you, Rabbi Karlinski. Is everybody able to hear me? My first question. Okay, yes. if you hear me, I'm going to begin. Thank you for your kind introduction. I was asked to give an overview in which I was supposed to discuss is there a mantra, a phrase, a central idea that guides me? And memories of my upbringing that shaped me. Shalom Bayit, Kashrut, aspects of Jewish life, and complex halachic questions. This introduction can take the entire time that I'm allotted. However, I'll be very brief so we'll be able to get to the questions as quickly as possible. If I had to pick one mantra, phrase, central idea, I would pick as follows. We are taught, we say it every single day, we are commanded to love Hashem. Chazal say, it's not enough for us, ourselves, to love Hashem, but part of this obligation includes to make Hashem beloved to everybody. The Rambam, say for our mitzvahs, mitzvahs Gimel, elaborates upon this and tells us, just as if we have a, a hero, a live hero, a human being, we try to get everybody to agree that he is the best. I remember when I was speaking of my upbringing, I grew up in New York City, I think Rabbi Kalinsky did as well, and there were then, no, you're from Los, Chicago. Los Angeles. So, so we can fight about this. <laughs> who was the better team? But in New York, the fight was, who was the better center fielder? Was it Duke Snyder or Willie Mays or Mickey Mantle? And everyone's going to fight why my center fielder is better than yours. It's a crazy memory from my youth. But Kalbachomer, says the Rambam, we should try to convince people that Kodesh Baruch was the greatest, greater than any human being, greater than any other person, any person. So that's uh, part of our responsibility. And if you ask me, this is really a subset of Yahav Tolerecha Kamocha. The Chafetz Chaim explains a text we say every day, we talk about the wonderful things that we do, about So the simple shot is, yeah, Talmud Torah is critical. The Chavaz Chaim explains, no, Talmud Torah with respect to Gemilas Chasadim, the greatest chesed you can do for another person is to be Mekai from the Torah. More important, everything. This is the greatest chesed a person can do. So, making Hashem beloved to all people is not only via haftas Hashem alokecha, it's via haftarecha kamocha, it's really both of them. My upbringing, a very simple upbringing. I was brought up in a firm home. My parents, wonderful, wonderful role models beyond description. I could spend the whole hour describing their greatness. They had tremendous shalom bias. Their house was fully kosher in a, what I call today, a normal sense, without some of the extreme stringencies that exist today. The house was full of Torah, full of achnosas orchim. And yes, my parents were involved in people's issues. And I began to learn from them that life is complex. Life is complex. Things are not always black and white. 
and the complexities of my youth, not that our family was involved in terrible problems, there were issues in the house, absolutely, medical issues and other issues, but life is complex, and you take the idea of complexity, and you have to apply it to the world of halacha as well. Hence, the last point of the introduction, complex halachic questions, comes from my later education in halacha, combined with my upbringing about complexity. I should just add at the end that aside from the uh, Shalom Bayat, etc., which goes to my home, I was also educated by some of the greatest rabbis of the time. My paramount, my primary rabbi, Rabbi Yosef Tov Salavechik Sechatzadik Levracha, specialized in complexity. His writings are all about complexity and the dialectic and the competing and often contradicting the issues we have to deal with. So complexity is no stranger to me. With this, I conclude my introduction. Okay, thank you, Rabbi. That was exactly what we wanted to hear and very helpful. So I'm going to start with the first question. Um, and this is really uh, something that's on a lot of people's minds and it's very complex. I'm going to read it pretty much as it was sent in and I, I just edited it slightly. And I'm really combining two questions, but the Yesod is going to be the same. What are the parameters of attending the intermarriage of a close family member? This has become a real problem now in recent years because A, Bali Chuva have unfortunately family members who are not connected and intermarriage has become a, a growing problem if it was always as it was, but that we have more people now who are confronted with it. And continuing, how do I best maneuver keeping a close bond between my kids and my parents and sister who are not religious, especially when we go and stay with them in America, obviously from an Israeli alum. I will also add that currently my sister is in a serious four-year relationship with a non-Jew. How to deal with family members whose values clash with our own, like attending intermarriage, gay weddings, bar mitzvah ceremonies, parties that don't meet Orthodox halachic standards. Again, it's a big picture. I've combined a number of questions, but I'm sure that the mahalach will have to be the same for the whole discussion. Thank you for making the first question the most difficult. So it's uh, we'll start from the very beginning. All of these uh, attendings of these various celebrations, such as intermarriage, gay weddings, clearly one should, in an ideal world, not be attending these events. They simply run counter to not only specifics of Jewish law of halacha, but counter to the very essence of the people of Israel, which is to build Jewish homes, Jewish families. These are tragedies which repeat themselves so many times. But you may say, where does it say in the Shulchan Aruch that I can't attend? So let me explain to you that there is something called a fifth volume of Shulchan Aruch. You know the Shulchan Aruch has four. The fifth volume is an expression we use for matters which are of a meta-halachic nature, which also involve a very serious personal nature in each and every case. It's not a question of the pot or pan kosher 
or non-kosher. And it seems to me that just as from the perspective of the fifth Shulchan Aruch, these are major, major problems. Intermarriage, gay marriage, not so much because of the prohibition itself. There are many prohibitions. Though people don't keep Shabbos, it's also a prohibition. But these issues go to the root of what Jewish identity and Jewish family is all about. That's what makes them so serious from the perspective of that fifth volume of Shulchan Aruch. But that volume, more than any other, contains within it the specifics of each and every personal situation. If the pot is kosher, the pot is not kosher, sure, there are certain situations where you have a shasat chak, we can permit something which otherwise would not be allowed based upon financial considerations as we find often in Shulchan Aruch. But here, since the entire issue is menahalachik, the role of menahalacha in terms of instructing an individual assumes a much greater proportion. And I, the phrase I utilize is Eis Lasos Hashem which means there are times in life when even though something is literally anti-Torah, against the Torah, once in a while, you have to do it anyway. That's, how, that's the understanding of Eis Lasos Hashem. It happened in Jewish history. Just to give the most prominent example that everyone knows, when the oral Torah was committed to writing against an explicit law, uh, the alternative would be to forget everything. So the great people of the world understood you had to do something. We're going to get to that in the second question. Here too, every situation is different. We all know that ideally a person should not go to any intermarriages. As a matter of fact, in not that recent past, let's go back 100 years. What's 100 years in Jewish history? 100 years ago, if someone intermarried, he was wiped off the scene of the community and even the family. Someone married out, no one even knew about him. I could tell you a situation where someone married out and the members of the family did not know that he existed. They did not know that he existed until they got a little bit old and they said, who's this guy? He married out, his siblings cut him off, and no one even knew he existed. This is 100 years ago. Not longer. And for good reason. For good reason. Because at that time, when everyone understood the basics of the Jewish community was all about, intermarrying was the ultimate treason. Treason. Treason against your people. And therefore, the people had to be just removed. You know, maybe you don't know, but a thousand years ago, Rabbeinu Gershom, Maor HaGola, the greatest rabbi of his time, had a such a situation. There are various understandings. Some said he observed Shiva when the child intermarried. And there are other versions we would not go into right now. And as a matter of fact, this was something which was observed even in the recent past. Some of you may have seen in your earlier a play called Fiddler on the Roof. I remember the as a child seeing it, the first, the first daughter marries someone who was very liberal. 
The second marries a daughter, marries a someone who's very, who's not observant completely. And the Tevye, the Melchika says, on the one hand and on the other hand, and the third one marries a non-Jew, and he says famously, his famous line, there is no other hand. This is someone in Europe, you know, pre-war Europe, and that we understand that was beyond the pale intermarriage. Sadly, in the last hundred years, the scene has changed dramatically. Dramatically. And I would say that within that hundred years, the primary exponential increase, we'll call it in the post-war period. I would say even beyond that, the war is over 75 years, uh, approximately. It started in the post-war exit to the suburbs. Because you see, I live in the Bronx. The older people of the Bronx were completely not religious, told me they went to local public schools where most of their classmates were Jewish. And they went to city college where the classmates were Jewish. So although they had no religion, they married Jews organically. All that changed when two phenomena began to exist in the 60s to increase the phenomena. They run into the suburbs, and the suburbia, they interacted already at a young age with many non-Jews, as opposed to those who lived in the Bronx where everyone was Jewish. And number two, the flight from the city colleges to the second universities from coast to coast. And there they met non-Jews. They had no sense. There's anything wrong with meeting non-Jews, and they married non-Jews. And now it's just gotten worse and worse and worse from the perspective of Jewish survival. There's a phrase now called the vanishing American Jew. A very sad phrase. As you probably are aware, intermarriage now is beyond 50%. Some are saying way beyond, but certainly beyond in the Jewish community. So the average Jew now who's intermarrying, we call him a Tinoch Shenishba. No one told them there's anything wrong with intermarriage. No one. Not in his school, not in his synagogue, if he belongs to a synagogue. He doesn't know. For that individual, male or female, there's no difference between dating a Jew, dating a non-Jew. No difference whatsoever. It can't call that treason. It can't say it's someone who is turning his back in a purposeful fashion on the dramatic, historic Jewish history pattern since Avram Avinu. They never heard of Avram Avinu. They, they, they know anything. Never heard of Harsinai, never heard of Moshe Rabbeinu. They know anything. They simply what we call a Tinak Shenishba. A Tinak Shenishba is a whole different story. A whole different story. And therefore, the person doesn't know that there's any prohibition. There are times in which a person should be told there's an option to attend an intermarriage. Something which is unthinkable 100 years ago. And even the giants of the previous generation, I'll quote one of them, he was the, how should we say it, perhaps the greatest of them all in terms of dealing with the, the complexities of the outside world as it relates to Judaism. His name is Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, a great man. I know one of his sons, I think, teaches or taught in Chappelle's at some point in time, grandsons, I should say. And he would tell people sometimes, you know, you have to go to an intermarriage, which was, incre- which was impossible to imagine when he was a rabbi in Europe, he saw what's going on. People just don't know. I was shown 
in preparation for this Q&A, a beautiful saver called Takanat Hashavim, Takanas Hashavim, which is a fascinating phrase in the Gemara, all about situations dealt with by Baalei Tshuva, written by someone named Rabbi Travis, with whom I have some kind of indirect connection. And in his piece on this very topic, he says what I said, that is a matter of the fifth volume of Shulchan Aruch, but he doesn't just say it on his own. He's a, a young rabbi, relatively speaking. He quotes the giants. He quotes the late Rav Nissen Karelitz, the famous nephew of Chazanish who passed away recently from Bnei Barak. Lahavdal ben Chaim, he quotes of Moshe Sternbach, Shalita, one of the leaders of the, the what they call the Eidah Charedis, the, uh, the most devout portion of the Orthodox community. He also briefly mentions Rabbi Yitzhak Berkowitz, the name I'm sure is known to all of you, as one of the leaders of the entire movement of which Chappelle's and Midrash and Rachel are proud to be a part. All of them say the same thing in, in different ways. Yes, in cases in which you have to participate. You have to take into account, and if you don't participate, it could destroy your relationship. And what happens if this intermarriage breaks up? If you destroy the relationship, done. If you kept it, it breaks up, come back to the Chekha Mishpacha, to the family unit, and maybe you can influence him next go-around to marry Jewish. Beyond that, a hard-line refusal to attend in some cases can destroy the entire family fabric with an individual, especially about Shuvah, can become disassociated against his will and against what's proper from the whole family, from the father and the mother and the uncles and the aunts. And the, they'll all look at you as a pariah and you'll be destroyed, which is not good. Every person, especially about Shuvah, would be well advised to have a support group from the family from which he comes. And I'll tell you one more thing. In my limited experience, a limited experience, individuals in this community of Baalei Tshuva come from the I, uh, families will not understand your hard line. They will not understand it. They will just, they, they're not able to understand it. They can't figure it out. They can't. You have to try to explain that you have limitations what you can do. But if you have to go, you should go not to destroy the entire family unit. But this is true of intermarriage. We haven't gotten to other parts of the of the question yet, other celebrations, etc., and non-orthodox. Now, my Rebbe, our salvation, was very strong that a person has no right to pray in a mixed pews congregation. He even used an expression once, say, Horogval Yava, is it something which you have to give up your life? And he famously wrote in the Yiddish papers in the 50s, there was Rosh Hashanah, and the only way to hear shofar is in a mixed-use congregation, stay home, and don't even hear the shofar. Having said that, having said that, it's important to be close with members of the family. And I've found, and I've dealt with many Balat primarily in my shul, nearly every one of them, when I meet the parents, they come for a bris, or something like that. They are very ethical people. They have wonderful family values. Just that they themselves were no longer, they weren't taught. It's already the next, the third or fourth generation. 
how do you explain to your children the fact you're going to America and they're not observant? Explain that their grandparents, uncles and aunts, don't blame them. They never received an education. On the contrary, we should love them, we should be close to them, and we should learn from their wonderful midos, which they almost invariably have. The proof is that <laughs> the parents of these children, the Balachuva themselves, almost always come from such homes. That's what brought them to Chuva in the in the first place. Yes, we don't learn from our your, your grandfather doesn't keep Shabbos that we can't learn from because we, we saw the light. We were blessed with that knowledge. He doesn't have that knowledge, doesn't have that blessing. And so too, <laughs> as even though a person cannot pray in mixed pews congregation, you don't have to pray there. You can pray by yourself privately or with the early minion and attend. Even though my Rebbe was opposed to even walking in to such a uh, uh, mixed pew synagogue, I do not believe that his very powerful expressions applied to just simply walking in there in the un- obviously walking in just to give honor to the members of the family for a bar mitzvah or something like that. You're not giving credence to the to the legitimacy of a mixed-fused congregation. You're not praying there. You're sitting there because the family wants you to sit there. I believe that, and I've, some of my great rebbeim, contemporary great rebbeim, have given that sack to individuals whose parents were conservative rabbis, and the same would apply to Valet uh, Tshuva, whose relatives are making a bar mitzvah. Um, I would think that the most difficult of the entire part of this very difficult question is the thrown in gay weddings. Now, gay weddings, it seems to me, have a, a, a even an additional problem on two levels. On a, on a technical-ish, technical level, so gay relationships, especially between men, are represent a more serious violation of strict halacha, even than intermarriage. But that's not the main point. That is true technically. But the larger point is that just as intermarriage destroys the whole essence of the Jewish family, it does not destroy the essence of a family. For example, half of the intermarriages involve a Jewish woman who's going to have Jewish children. You better want to hang on to them. Even in the other direction, where Jewish men marries a non-Jewish woman and has non-Jewish children, there's always a prospect of a conversion. You never know. Whereas gay marriage is totally, aside from any particular stricter technical violations which may exist, it's against the whole concept of family. As we know, in the outside world, the people who advocate for family are not against intermarriage. Some of them really are intermarried, but they're against gay marriage. We know what the Supreme Court said seven years ago. We know what Congress said a few days ago. We know all this. But there's a large segment of the United States population that's still opposed. It's against the fundamental definition of what a, what a marriage is and what a family is. Having said that, one still has to take into account what we said before. The fear here is that surprisingly, very surprisingly, you, would, you wouldn't think it's true, that there are synagogues, even some of whom profess to be Orthodox, 
who will publish in their bulletins a mazel tov on a gay marriage. I find it hard to understand. I, I really don't understand it, but it's a reality. And I, not far from where I live, from where I'm speaking to you, was I do not believe, could me I'm wrong, I do not believe they will extend the same mazel tov to an intermarriage. That sounds a little paradoxical. We're not here to analyze the policies of other communities, but it indicates that there are some people who want to suggest that maybe this we can be soft on gay marriage while well, they have no alternative. We've heard all these arguments. And that, chas v'shalom, could lead to an impression that if a person attends, he's giving legitimacy to it. He thinks it's legitimate for the various reasons which are not correct, which are espoused by parts of even the, quote, orthodox community, which may be a bigger problem there than even an intermarriage. Having said all this, I would use the expression of never say never. It all depends on the particular circumstances, even though I say that this particular uh, manifestation of the problem is the most serious of them all. That's my answer to question number one. I'm looking at my clock, and I don't know how we're going to get to 17 questions, whatever it is, but I felt that okay. I answered the first question. All right, again, we're, we saved the hardest ones for the beginning, and we knew they're going to take a little longer. And if we don't get to the last ones, it's not the end, and we can maybe shorten them as we get on. When we talk about the evolution of halacha, how far do we take it? Halacha needs to be aligned with changing circumstances. There are many examples of psak today which are unlike psak from the times of the Rishonim. Is this phenomenon due to organic internal development within halacha? Can one state that halacha has changed, at least in part based on values from the outside world that have influenced Jewish thinking? What would the formula be for halacha to be adapted to changing circumstances while maintaining fidelity to Mesorah. Okay. As a rule, the halacha doesn't change, the facts change. When the facts change, halacha at times will make adjustments. I'd like to give two examples which came from giants, both of the Talmud and of the more recent past of a century or more ago. And they both relate to the year we just finished. It's called the year of Shemitah. The year of Shemitah. Just a few months ago, at the end of the Shemitah year, all debts were canceled by Torah law. There was a famous man named Hillel. Hillel came along and said, you know what's happening? People are, are not lending money because they know the debt will be canceled when the seventh year ends. And they're in violation of a, one of the low sasses, one of the 365 don'ts in the Torah. So in order to avoid that terrible violation, he instituted something called a prusbul, which is a workaround to be able to enable the debts to be maintained after Shemitah is over. That's one. In certain non-Orthodox understandings, the paradigm of Hillel was used to permit many other things. Many. Driving to Shul on Shabbos, you name it. We're following Hillel. Hillel changed halacha. We can also change the halacha. Now, the Gemara discusses how Hillel had the ability to do that, either because he was dealing with something rabbinic or with something monetary. Either of those gives it more latitude to rabbis to move 
as opposed to driving on Shabbos. But more recently, an additional problem, the blessed return to Zion, and Jewish farmers began to till the soil. They could not survive by keeping the agricultural laws of Shemitah, and they revolved the concept called a heter mechira, selling the land to a non-Jew as the workaround from other prohibitions referring to the land itself, working the land or consuming the fruits of the land. This, as you know, is greatly controversial. I'm not going to go into the details now. But here too, look, the rabbis do what they want to do, what they feel, what they think that has to be done. And this leads some well-intentioned people to create a new phrase where there's a rabbinic will, there's a halachic way, also coming from not far from where I'm sitting. And this is a an incorrect statement, an incorrect statement. The permissibility of even working the land, which is which is not so much of an we'll call it but rather is also based on technical halacha. Some things are rabbinic, some things if you sell it to a non-Jew, it's there's no restrictions. These are technical workarounds. So we might call them legal loopholes. In the same way, as there are many of you, I'm sure, aware of the fact that people use legal loopholes to avoid paying taxes to the government. As long as it's legal, it's, it's okay. So in certain instances, the rabbis, the great rabbis felt that you have to use these legal loopholes because the alternative is worse. This is something which is given over to the giants of the generation, not to any particular uh, individual, even a particular rabbi. Only the giants can make these, these difficult decisions. When you think about it, the majority of the changes that are referred to in this question are based upon values of the world, yes, which affect primarily, almost exclusively, what I call by Nanam Lechavero, interpersonal relationships. Interpersonal relationships, how do you define certain relationships the way it was defined then and the way it's defined now? And once again, I believe you need the judge of the generation to know when do you fight against these changes in values and when do you say that is a fight which is not worth fighting? We have to acclimate ourselves to the new realities. I'll give a number of examples. We can spend an hour on this question as well. You know, the Torah tells us that when a man passes away, leaves sons and daughters, all the money goes to the sons, and the daughters get zero. It says it in the Torah, explicitly. Well, hundreds of years ago already, this didn't fly in the community. And so, great rabbis, already preceding the source and the Shulchan Aruch of the Ramah, created a workaround. It was called the Shtar Chasi Zachar, which enabled daughters to get a half a share, and the sons got a whole share. So if a man had two sons and two daughters, by Torah law, the sons get everything. And by this mechanism, each son gets one-third, and each daughter gets one-sixth. It fell into disuse. Do you know why it fell into disuse? So the, the, the Geshe Rechaim and others explain why. Because the daughters wanted a full share. And the world became... You know, the Ramo is a Renaissance man in the 16th century, giving them a half a share, and now they want a full share. So the Shtar Chatzizach fell into this use. 
I was thankful to Rabbi Kalinsky for mentioning my involvement in prenups. But before that, and since then as well, I'm involved in what they call a shtar chatzizacha for modern people that when they write a will to make it effective halachically, they should do it in a fashion which is a workaround. So you indemnify yourself to a large sum of money. But how should, what should they do? So I wrote about 15 years ago a command performance. My Rebbe Rav Shechter asked me to do it. He had asked me to write 40 years ago about the Shtar Chatzitzach. So write about how the money should be distributed. And copying from the, from the Geshe Rechaim, who was a Haredi Rav in Yerushalayim, the old city originally, I advocated something which sounds shocking. Namely, divide your assets equally to all your children. You have two sons and two daughters, each gets 25%. That's against the Torah. The Torah says the opposite. The answer is, given the circumstances, that's what we have to do. And the Geshe Rechaim in his introduction says, there was one rich Jew in Jerusalem, and he followed the purist, idealist, followed the Torah, gave two, two portions to the eldest son, and the other sons and daughters got nothing. And what happened? You look it up. It caused tremendous hatred in the family. The whole family split into pieces. And the people said about this individual, it would be better if he died penniless. Penniless. Family would stay together. So you'll say, but you're giving in to the, the new values of the world. Yes. Yes. Sadly, we give in to values of the world. You know, the... Many halachas are based, the Gemara and Babakama, based on the fact that a woman is more likely to stay at home, not be involved in masa or matan and working outside the home, etc. That was a reality for centuries, for centuries. Even in the broader American community, 100 years ago, that was still the reality. I remember seeing a little film of uh, Times Square from 100 years ago. 90% of the people in the square we're men. And today it's 50-50. And the famous tshuva of Shlomo Zalman and Rabbi Valdemar about Shuk Machna Yehuda says in the Gemara, you shouldn't walk behind a woman. It's impossible in Machna Yehuda. You want to go buy for fruits for Shabbos. It's an impossibility. The world has changed. So the facts change. Once the facts changed, so some of the halachas change. What the Torah says you cannot do, you have no choice but to do. Or for example, husband-wife relationships. So the Gemara tells us in Pesachim that a woman does not do what we call her seba on Seder night. And according to one, understand, one understanding, one text in the, in the Talmud, because of her, her husband, and she has a certain, you might call it family situation, it's inappropriate for her to recline in her husband's presence. But the Gemara tells us, Noshim Chashuvos, important women, they're exceptions to the rule. And we showed him already said, 800 years ago, look on the Mordechai Pesachim, Noshim Shalanu Kulam Chashuvos. The Ramah quotes it. All our women, every woman, every married woman now, is what used to be the rare exception of a more liberated, independent, equal partner in the marriage. Now it's true across the board. So the locha changes. According to this opinion, a woman would have to recline and stay the night. We don't. For a totally different change of facts. What's the different change of facts? In the olden days, like you saw the pictures of the Roman emperors, they lean when they ate. We don't do that anymore. So that's another change. The two changes sort of cancel each other. 
The halacha doesn't change, the facts change. When the facts change, the halacha, again, based on the gedoli hadar, you can't do it on your own, will in fact change. You know, certainly it's true when things were not total halachas. The Rambam mentions in 15 places, tzivu chachamim. In all places, it's not an absolute halacha. Some discuss the husband-wife relationship. Things change, you know. <laughs> the Rambam writes that in one place, that a woman should be given a lot of leeway by her husband, that she can leave her house once or twice a month. Can you imagine that? So the story is told that one Kolo guy told his wife at Sheva Brochus that you can leave your house once or twice a month. It's in the Rambam. So the story goes, she used her monthly pass to go to Rabbi Yashif, who came and called her and started screaming at him. It was the Rambam. That was in the Rambam. The world has changed so dramatically since his time. Yeah. It says in the, in the uh, halacha, fascinatingly, that um, when someone loses a parent, there's certain laws of aninus, that uh, certain limitations. Limitations. So in one of the contemporary books of a wonderful author, he suggests, well, this would not apply to a woman who's married because she has a primary responsibility towards her husband. That is not accurate, in my opinion. Her primary responsibility is to honor the memory of a deceased parent. And every husband has to understand that. Maybe he didn't understand it in the time of the, of the Talmud or even the time of the medieval greats that are quoted there. The world has changed. The facts have changed. There's a world-famous example given by the Chazonish, the iconic post-tick of two generations ago. In the olden days, certain violators, there's an expression in the Talmud, moridim You have to eliminate them. So the Chazonish says, that was true. We had Ruach HaKodesh, and there was a small little bad weed that you had to weed out. Today, if you engage in these strong-arm tactics, will be viewed as hooliganism. It no longer applies. What changed? How can it change the halacha? The facts change. When the facts change automatically, the halacha changes. That's the way it is. But it's up to the Das Torah of, of Gdole Torah to decide when we have to change, when we don't have to change, what battles are we still fighting against the, the culture. We are all countercultural. But what battles do we fight? What we don't fight? We have to pick our battles this we leave to the uh, advice and guidance of Gedolei Torah. Which takes us right into the next questions. What are your thoughts on Yoetzet Halacha? Would you explain your stance? And I'm connecting it to another question that's not that's sort of related. What's your opinion on women dancing with the Sefer Torah on Simchas Torah? The two are certainly related. But let's go to the first one. The two issues with uh, Yoetzot Halacha. One is pure halachic. Pure halachic. A rabbi, before he gets his smicha, is supposed to have gone through many years of yeshiva, supposed to have mastered significant parts of the Talmud and those Talmudic thinking. He's supposed to have been tested on significant parts of the Shulchan Aruch. And he gets what they call a yore yore degree. A yoetzet halacha, by contrast, is given training and good training in the specifics of family purity and other related issues, fertility, medicine, which is all good, it's all wonderful. But I sometimes compare it to a doctor 
a doctor has to go through college and the, about organic chemistry and go to medical school. And there's so many different branches of medicine until he chooses, I'm going to specialize in this particular area. Right? Whatever it'll be. But what would happen if someone would skip college, skip medical school, and just learn a little bit about the technicalities of a particular field? You want to call it dermatology, cardiology. And I know how to do all the, all the things that are being done in, in the field. That person is not qualified. They don't have the broader vision, the broader vision, which is a, obviously if the medical schools are still teaching chemistry and they demand they get a good mark on organic chemistry, which is where many people drop out of pre-med, as we well know. There's a reason for it because you have to have the broad science to be able to deal with the specifics that come up and later in life. Same thing is true of Torah. By and large, these yoatzot are not given that kind of a broad education, not blaming them. They come to this idea a little bit later in life, and they didn't spend uh, 12 years in the yeshiva, and that's a serious problem. Sadly, an additional issue is that many, if not most, of answers given by yoatzot are anonymous. You know, I read on some of their websites, they answered 100,000 questions. Very nice. How many of those questions were answered when the person answering had a full knowledge of the person who was asking the question? How do I know that they don't? Because the yotzel called me from time to time. I ask simple questions. How old is the person? How firm is the person? Are there children? Basic questions which relate to complex questions. We heard about complexities in in Taras and Ashmacha. They don't know. My Rebbe Rabbaran Soloveitchik, excuse me, Rabbaran Luchtenstein, Zechat Tzadik Levrocha, was once asked about Yovatzot. He said, look, if they're just giving advice, it's a wonderful thing. He can never imagine that any Yovetzot Halacha would paskin, would rule on what he called a mara, a specific cloth that has a specific color on it. My Rebbe Rabban was tzaddik, but he was not clued into what's going on in the real life. He didn't know that many of the Yatzot are ruling on these things. Yes or no, but he, he didn't know what it, would, what it really meant. And I'm going to go further than that. I'll tell you something which I think is very important. Very important. Every negative has a positive. And the positive aspect is that there are women who ask Shilas of the Yatzot who would not ask a rough. Now take another radical statement, which you may find puzzling coming from my mouth. There are Yoatzot who know more than Rabbanim. I'm speaking from first-hand knowledge. Yoatzot know more about these laws than rabbis. Not every Yoatzot is created equal. Not every rabbi is created equal. So you, can get, you may get a better answer from Yoatzot than a, than a particular rabbi who doesn't know the stuff. But that's not an ideal. The ideal is you don't, rabbis don't outsource. Rabbis answer questions with their broad knowledge, both of the halacha and of the people who are asking them. The rabbi knows the family, the members of the shul. The woman doesn't want to, doesn't want to, doesn't want to uh, go to the rabbi. There are two ways around that since time immemorial. The woman goes to her husband, it goes to the rabbi, or the woman goes to the rabbi, and it goes to her husband, the rabbi. It's very easy. 
There are also other ways these days. I don't like anonymous questions. I answer them. I must tell you that for many years I resisted caller ID because people call me these kind of questions. They wanted to be anonymous. I mean, I had no choice but to get caller ID. But anonymous is not so good. Rav Hankin would say, anonymous on the phone, he didn't have caller ID in his days. It's banned. If you made a mistake, you want to go back on it. You want to call back the person. Can't do it if you don't. It's not such a, it's not such a good thing. It's just not. So therefore, I believe, although there are upsides, I, I believe that there are downsides, and the ideal should be that the question should go to a qualified rough, directly or indirectly, as I just explained. And for this reason, I cannot be a supporter of Yoatzot. I was once asked in the presence of one of my great rebbeim, why do I answer their questions if I'm just supporting what they're doing? And the great rabbi answered, what? He shouldn't answer them? And they should be violating the laws of, of Tara? So of course I have to answer them. But the fact that I answer them does not mean that I support the whole institution. The institution, what we call, may call a, we call a bidli evet, given the, the facts on the ground. But my view is, at the present time, I'm not ready to throw in the towel and say, yeah, this is the new ideal. We should support it completely. That's a decision that I've made based on consultation with others, my own sense at the present time. I can't say that, that this sack will be held by all people or for all generations. As I said to you before, there's sometimes when the front moves, you know, the Chazanish was in favor of studying in Hebrew in Bnei Brak, and the Yushalmis were screaming at him, we're fighting a battle against Hebrew, we have to speak in Yiddish. So the Chazanish said, well, the battle line has moved. A general who's fighting over here when the, when the troops are over there is making a terrible mistake. So I can't tell you what's going to happen in the future. I don't know. But that's my opinion at the present time, that this is something which we should not be encouraging. But again, we should not be denigrating. It exists. I participate in some of the questions and answers I get from you so, But I can't consider myself a supporter for the two reasons. The strict halachic reason, and there is also an issue, which comes to the next question, of feminism. Now, feminism is considered to be a, the highest level of positivity in some circles and the highest level of negativity in other circles. The same word, the same word. Where I come from depends on the circumstances. What are we talking about? That they should be equal pay for equal work? I'm the biggest egalitarian. I think it's absolutely, I'm, I'm totally on board. But to say that the role should now be blurred completely, completely blurred, and men and women are identical with everything except for biology and anatomy? I think that's crazy. Speaking of blurred, I read recently there was a lawsuit against a certain Haredi organ that blurred the pictures of women. I'm saying on the record, I'm against all of that. I'm in favor of there being pictures of women properly attired. I'm in favor. I don't like this canceling of women. I think it's very unhealthy. Unhealthy. It can drive them to other sites and it can drive them away from Yiddishkeit. It's a new phenomenon. Didn't happen in my youth. There was no such thing. No such thing. So why does it exist now? It exists now for a simple reason. Money. Where my money? As we all know, the fastest growing segment of Orthodox population is Hasidim, who are 
passing everybody, as well as the yeshivas, and then half of the yeshiva world, the same position exists, no women in pictures, and that's what pays for all the magazines. Doesn't matter what the editor thinks. He knows where his bread is buttered. So, I don't agree, but I'm saying, how we deal with feminism depends what you're talking about. Every, every issue should be judged independently. Sadly, some of the uh, supporters of Yoatzot have a distinct feminist agenda. So I'm sad to say it. That causes an individual to perhaps recoil and not be involved in supporting this, despite the fact that there are some good things. As I said before, there are negatives even without, before you come to feminism. But this has to be thrown into the mix. And the same thing applies to the next part of the question, which deals with the issue of women dancing with Seva Torah and Simchas Torah. Can I say it's a, t- a total prohibition? No. That would be a, a falsification of, of strict halacha. And we dare not do that. That was the mistake. It goes back to Adam Arisha when he's told Chava that you can't touch the tree lest you die. So the Dachash pushed her and she touched the tree. She didn't die because Adam didn't tell the truth. He made up his own version of what God told him. I'm not here to make any new versions. There's nowhere in the four volumes of Shulchan Aruch that a woman can't dare to the Sefer Torah. However, there's that fifth volume. And the fifth volume is for Gedolim. My Rebbe, of Salavetchik, the Kron of the Ruch, was opposed to women's hakafos way back when. Way back when. And his, his phrase, as quoted by Rabbi Marzman in his book, is it's a violation of synagogue etiquette. I'll use a different word. Mesorah. It's not traditional. And our shuls, even more than our homes, have to be traditional. If, they, if you break the customs of shuls, it's just a custom. Before you turn around, everything falls apart. Everything falls apart. You know, they say that when the non-Orthodox began, they, they, they took away the, the Yakum Perkan of people from Bavel. They're not in Bavel anymore. And it started with a small little, small little thing. Then they took, took, then they say they took away the first one also. They used to make a joke, but Yimach has Yakum, even the Yakum Perkan for the great rabbinic leaders. They don't want that either. Next thing you know, they put organs in the sanctuaries and they found a way that the organ should be okay. Next thing you know, they're gone. Gone. They're, they're gone. They're intermarried. They don't, it's all over. The customs of Kalayistro, the Messorah that we have, is a critical component of who we are. And as I said before, there can be certain changes. I agree. There can be certain changes. But the changes of great moment must be sanctioned by Gedolei Torah. I'll give an ex- another example, which fits into the same issue. Same, same issue. There's a big question about the role of the woman with respect to Jewish education. As you know, until 100 years ago, there was almost no schools for Jewish women. And the famous heroic figure was Sarah Schneer. And someone asked who was the most important figure in Jewry of the 20th century, which included the Chafetz Chaim and the Chazanish and all that. Someone said, Sarah Schneer, if not for her revolution, all the Torah scholars would have been lost within a generation. She introduced the Behol Beis Yaakov, etc. And the Chafetz Chaim initially wrote that now that there's a big change in the world, what's the change? That the women are becoming literate, they can read and write, you have to give them a, a, a Jewish education. 
a primitive basic education. My Rebbe Rav Salavich was famous in saying, well, now they're getting PhDs, you have to give them much more sophisticated uh, Jewish education. He even included the Talmud. And at the time, he was fighting a battle. Remember, pre-feminism. He wasn't worried about that at the time. Today, it's not so simple. I was discussing this many years ago, about seven years ago, that the Talmud study is linked to feminism, which is linked to some of the other manifestations that we may not approve. Women rabbis, partnership minyanim, it all goes together. So you have to look at it with the fifth Shulchan Aruch, macro, not micro. So all of these things, such as, as dancing with Simchas Torah, I'm just saying that there's no specific violation. There's no specific violation. It's not Amisora. Not Amisora. That's what my rabbi meant when he said it's not synagogue etiquette, as I understand it. In every case, in every generation, we have to deal with these things appropriately. Okay, well, let me get now to something a little more practical. These have been very high-level theoretical almost. I'm going to skip to number seven. Why is what is why is the paramount importance of living in Eretz Israel as described and personally modeled by Chazal largely swept under the rug in America? I think they're especially referring to the more Haredi yeshiva community. Should we either as individuals or on a communal level be more promotive of Aliyah or should this not be viewed as a current priority? Okay. Personally, Maral by Chazal is, is a, only a partial, partially correct statement. As you are well aware, many of the Chazal, Chazal refers to Talmudic scholars, lived in the diaspora. And some of them did not want to go from the diaspora to the Holy Land. Because at that point in time, the, was, the stronger spiritual community was in Bavel, more than in Eretz Yisrael. So they stayed in Bavel. So if you're worried about the Haredi yeshivas staying in America, perhaps they feel that their spiritual environment in their particular enclave is stronger than can be attained in the Holy Land. So I'm going again, back to the question about Chazal. Chazal did not believe that every single person should run to Eretz Yisrael. They were more concerned about the Torah development. And if, if a person felt that it can be better achieved in, in the diaspora, then so be it. Now, I must say that the Ramban would have a pro- problem with this. Because the Ramban, both in his parish and Chumash and Sefer Mitzvah, says it's a chiv to live, it's an obligation to live in Israel, only to be ignored when it's too dangerous. Thank God. I mean, there's danger in America, there's danger in Eretz Israel. We should not be deterred by the danger. However, my Rebbe and many others feel that the Ramban's position is not universally accepted. Many felt that the Rambam disagreed, and according to him and, and, and others, although they all agree it's a mitzvah to live in Israel, we call it a mitzvah kiyumis as opposed to chiyuvis. It's, a, it's an elective as opposed to a required mitzvah. And if it's an elective, it can be judged in the context of other electives. When you go to school, there's a choice of different electives. And there are individuals who feel that there are other possibilities, other possibilities which can only be achieved here in the United States. For example, to make a better parnasa and give more staka, do more chesed. And we have to understand that going to Israel is certainly a priority, but there can be other priorities as well, as well. 
I don't talk about it too much, honestly, because as how can I preach what I don't practice? I'm still living here in Riverdale. That's where I'm talking to you from Riverdale. I'm going to tell you, everyone has to go to Israel. That's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. It is true that the chief rabbi of Israel told others, you're not on a leaf. The captain can't leave the ship. And there's still many lives which are being influenced in America by Rabbanim, such as myself and many, many wonderful others. And then to leave them, if there'll be a spiritual downturn as a result of our abdication, we're not even allowed to do it. That's how many rabbis, including chief rabbis of Israel, have expressed themselves. And I should say at the same time that, you know, Aliyah, which is literally going up, should not Khalila bring with it a spiritual downturn, as the some Chachamim in Bavel felt yesteryear, and some feel that way today. Some situations involve a, a family that's involved with a nice community. Let's talk about the community that I inhabit. A nice community with a wonderful Musbah of our yeshiva was running a nice shul, a lot of Torah, a lot of religiosity. It's wonderful. And then they moved from that community to a different community in the land of Israel, not what they call quote a Haredi community. And there could be a spiritual downturn, which would be a tragedy to go to Israel because most people going to Israel are idealists. Idealists, which is wonderful, the ideal of setting an Eretz Israel. And it involves a level of discomfort. Not as much as it did uh, two generations ago. Granted, you can, get a, you can get a telephone these days, but but discomfort. But they're idealists. They want to move to the land of Israel, which is wonderful. It should be encouraged. But at the same time, they should be guided to move to a community which does not represent a spiritual downturn. They should be at least as religiously committed as the community from which they are leaving. It's another very important point which is sometimes overlooked by individuals with consequences which are not, not so good. So on that note, now we will shift gears. It appears that North American film community is becoming increasingly material-focused to an unprecedented degree. Fashion, food, homes, vacations. I think if you just look at the ads in the from magazines, you can see what we're talking about. The latest lifestyle trends pursued in an unabashed way. Advertising in our magazines promoting luxury products, that almost seem like a parody. How should we relate to this pervasive situation? How should we relate to this phenomenon, both in our personal lives and the even more difficult question of how to educate our children in such an environment? That's a very, very good question. It's not a new question. It's not a new question. One should only look in the Kli Yokar, this commentary at the beginning of Sefer Dvarim, Penula Chem Tzafona, Literally means just go north. He links Safona to the original root, which is Safon hidden. Hide. If you have money, hide your wealth. Hide your wealth. We're going to read, as he quotes, a week from Shabbos. Lama Tisra'u. If you have more than others, don't let it be, it be shown. Both of those are referring to the non Jewish community, but it's true within the Jewish community as well. The people who live, as the Kliyaka there says, even beyond their means, and they're in debt because they have to live a very ostentatious and 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 wealthy lifestyle. 
But even if you have the money, it's a terrible idea. It's terrible for yourself because not only are the non-Jews jealous of you as the Kriyoka writes, the Jews will be jealous of you. And worse, you're ruining your children because your children will be get used, used to this kind of ostentation, this, this kind of overemphasis on, on what the questioner said, uh, material focused, fashion, food, homes, vacations. It's not healthy. It's not healthy spiritually. Many have attempted to fight this with a frontal attack and almost all have failed. It seems to me that it's almost, almost pointless to have this frontal attack. They tried, you know, in certain circles, uh, certain Haredi circles, to make takonas. You can't have a wedding with more than that many people. They, can't do, they all failed. They failed because the, the wealthy people supporting the rabbis were the exceptions. Once it's an exception, by definition, you fail. To my mind, instead of trying to fight this in a frontal attack, you have to emphasize the other side. You know, there used to be an expression we just started saying recently, if you wave the ruach, the spiritual, and emphasize it, by definition, that's morid hagashim, the lowers the, the gashmias, the, the physicality and the, and, and the worldly possessions that people are, are aspiring to. That's what has to be done. And the most important way to do it for yourself and for your children is by a personal example. A personal example. It's true of all issues relating to children. Children are more influenced by what the parents do than by what they say. And children, to quote the famous book called Off the Derech, are repelled and often leave the Derech because of the hypocrisy they see in their parents. The parents say, do this, and they, and they themselves don't do it. They say, learn Torah, they don't learn Torah. They say, Davim Kavana, they don't Davim Kavana. They say, live a modest lifestyle, and they're a very ostentatious, opulent lifestyle. It's terrible. The way to combat this in every particular home is you lead a more modest life. I don't care what's in your bank account. Leave a more modest life, and, and your, your children will have to adjust even though some of their friends have everything, and they go back to the famous four, fashion, food, homes, and vacations, you're not obligated to keep up with the, uh, with the Schwartzes, with the, with, the, with the Jewish family next door. But they go on vacation. They school off, they, go to, they fly to Florida for three days. Why can't we fly to Florida? No, we're not going to fly to Florida. We're going to stay home. We'll go and have a little uh, entertainment and fun locally. What do you mean? But they have this fancy home, why can't we move into a fancy home? Fancy food, uh, fashion, why can't we buy clothes like they buy, which costs a fortune? We're not going to do it. Even if you have the money, it's not necessary. We try to provide for our children adequate food and adequate clothes and adequate homes, absolutely. Absolutely. But to go beyond that, you're putting an emphasis on the wrong thing yourself in your own home. You cannot expect your children to think any differently. Personal example, I believe, is the most important way to try to combat this overemphasis. At what point do people living in smaller communities that are on the whole less observant need to leave? When do you say, I will stay because we can make a difference? 
And when do you say our observance may slip or the pressure is too much for our family? We need to move to another, perhaps stronger community. What is the balance between achrayas to the community versus your personal and family achrayas? It's clear. Your achrayas to the, to the family comes first. No question about that. Achrayas to the family comes first. No doubt about it. It may surprise you to know that at times the achrayas, the responsibility towards the family, is better discharged with better results by fulfilling your achrayas to the community as well. I've seen it so many times, so many times, that people who are at the outposts, who are trying to enhance Jewish life in the smaller communities, smaller communities, they are the most wonderful, wonderful children. Wonderful. Yeah, you'll say, but they, their elementary school education was, was incomplete. Can't compete with the cheder that exists in stronger communities, bigger communities. I'll give a few examples in America. Uh, Brooklyn and, 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 and Lakewood and uh, Munstie. Uh, you can't compete with all those chadaram which exist in those communities you're living out of town. This doesn't exist. Let me tell you one thing. It's not all peaches and cream. Each and every one of those Haredi communities that I mentioned, with their corresponding Haredi communities in the Holy Land, have what I call a pack. You've all seen it. You walk around on Friday night in these neighbors and there's a pack. Kids who come from, from homes who either now less from or not from, and they're walking around in a pack. In a smaller community, there's no pack. There's not enough of a critical mass to create a pack. And therefore, in some ways, it's less dangerous to live in those communities which are small communities. Having said that, if a family sees that the children are not growing up with Yerush Shemayim, not with Abbas Torah, they're not growing up properly, and the parental example is insufficient to be able to foster that within their community, within their family. You know, it depends on the family. In some families, there's such an intensity that that overcomes whatever's around on the outside, whether it be the ignorance in, in an out-of-town community or the, we'll forgive the expression, mediocrity in the in-town community. The, the children are just driven by the parental example. That can work in a community where there are problems of smallness and problems of largeness. It's all important. A person has to know what is on the ground to be successful in raising his children with their not such superior elementary school education. High school, they can be sent away if necessary. And he's succeeding in implanting in his children the love of Torah and the fear of God. I would recommend stay where you are. You're doing great work. You're doing God's work. If you're failing, you can't reach that level. You want them to get a strong community. Then your responsibility to your family comes first. Here's an inyana dioma in a little bit of a cynical way. Is it appropriate to give non-Jewish colleagues and friends presents at their holiday season? I'll just combine this with another question. Is there a Jewish origin for Hanukkah presents? And how does a convert get together with non-Jewish family in a kosher way over the holiday season? Okay. If a person has to give a gift, and sometimes you have to give a gift, colleagues, friends, 
Or in a simpler, more pervasive situation, you know, there, there are some parts of the world you're supposed to give a gift or a tip to people in your own building. Maybe it's the, the janitor, maybe it's the person delivering the mail. There's certain expectations. So if you have to give a gift, the post can say, should couch it in somewhat different terms. You call it a, a New Year's gift or end of year bonus. Although we all know, those who don't know, most of us probably know, that the origin of January 1st is also Christian. Nonetheless, it's taken on a completely secular connotation. The average individual doesn't know the, the, the origin of January 1st. It's just a new calendar year. And therefore, uh, you give someone an end of year or a new year present. That's the way to handle presents. That's the way to handle presents. Uh, and that's the way it works. It happens. They're all the same time of the year, as, as you mentioned. Now, today is December 11th. So, you know, in three weeks, I believe it's January 1st. So you can give already now or anytime between now and then a New Year's gift or end of year bonus. That's the way to handle that particular situation. Now, is there a Jewish origin for Hanukkah presents? Probably not. Hanukkah guilt, money, that has an ancient tradition. Hanukkah guilt. Is it true that the idea of the metamorphosis from guilt to gifts may have something to do with the host culture, the host majority religion? Perhaps, perhaps. So therefore, we encourage Hanukkah guilt, but to make a total and absolute prohibition on gifts, I'm not ready to do it. Others are. I think that by now, it's become so ubiquitous in, in our world that's no longer associated with the, with the Christian holiday, which takes place around the same time. And therefore, if you have to give a gift, give a gift. But I think it's better to give Hanukkah guilt, which has a very long tradition. Now, a convert, non-Jewish family, the kosher and holiday season. It's a very simple question, the very complex answer. A convert, by definition, leaves the original religion and moves to a new one. By definition, this means somewhat of an estrangement from the original family. A little bit. Now, there are responses. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein talks about this, that even after a person converted, they still have to respect the parents. Um, it's relevant to different life cycle events or afterlife events. That's true. We want to maintain a convert, a proper connection, especially to the parents to whom they owe their lives. Hakaras Atov. If you, owe, if you owe money to a non-Jew, you should pay the money. If you owe your life to a non-Jew, you should pay with gratitude and, and, and a connection at particular times. But you can't, you can't let that interfere with your practice of the Jewish religion. And therefore, it's probably best to stay away from the, from the holiday parties that the family is having. If, on the other hand, the parents request or maybe demand your presence. So you should say to them, any convert should say to the parents, listen, you know that I converted to Judaism. I, if you ask me to come to a quote-unquote 
holiday party, if it's just, you know, a family type event, I will come. But you have to do me a favor. I'm understanding you. You understand me. There should be no clearly Christian activities or speeches going on. As you know, now that I'm Jewish, that's offensive to me. And I would say that almost as much as I mentioned earlier, that the Baalei Tshuva that I know come from ethical parentage of their non-observant Jewish parents, almost as much as true of converts. I met them involving myself in Geiris. They're typically ethical people. And they will respect your right to your new religion and not to cause you religious pain. And in that case, there can be a family gathering. It happens to be in December. It's okay, because this is something which is, keeps that family connection alive, and it's appropriate to do it in a limited way. Is there a place for media and entertainment in the Jewish home? What are the Rosh Hashiva's thoughts on computers, phones, YouTube, Instagram for teenagers? We live in a community where many of the girls have these things. I'm worried my daughter will think we're too crazy and strict and will ultimately be turned off. Where do we draw the line and find balance? Here too, it's very difficult to swim against the tide. Ideally, we mentioned before where a person grows up. It's better to grow up in a place where this is not so widespread, whether in the neighborhood or in the school. It's not so easy to find such neighborhoods because even though uh, officially there's no internet in certain communities, in fact, it's not that way. The story is told there was a gathering in City Field against the internet and the Lakewood Mashkiach was part of it. The story is told, can't vouch for its veracity, that they drove the Mashkiach to the streets of Lakewood, his, his home base, and there's a way to tell if there's some kind of internet within 100 yards. And every block had an internet. Right smack in the heart of Lakewood. It's difficult to go against internet. And today, internet is in everybody's pocket. Smartphones. Everybody's pocket. Something which ideally we sh- shouldn't exist. But in reality, it does exist. And to say no in most communities would simply not work. So you have to, you have to do the best you can. In some schools, I know the parents have gotten together to at least postpone. In this grade, we want to, all the parents got together, no cell phones. Just, just give it another year or two of postponement. This way, the child will say to the parents, what do you mean? Abba, Ima, everybody in the class has it. No, no, the class does not have it. The majority do not have it. Parents have gotten together in certain schools to effect this type of at least delay. At least delay. You know, we can't control this thing. Forever, forever. If you have no alternative, at the very least, it's a parental responsibility to limit limit both the content. How you do that, I don't know. It filters or guards your eyes and if they, they send it what's to, to somebody else. You know, they can get around these things. You have to go to the experts to figure it out. And equally important, the time spent and wasted on these devices. I tell people that at the very least, the child's phone has to be charged in the living room every night. 10 o'clock, times is bedtime, put the phone on the charger that's under the parental supervision. Otherwise, it can be up all night. 
You know, in the outside world, they're up all night with the internet. They can't function the next day. There's nothing to do with religion. It's true in, the, in general. They just, they can't function because they're addicted to their device. So you have to make sure it's, it's kept there. Uh, in the olden days, I think it's still true in principle, I declared, I was surprised, happily to see that my statement was echoed by the greatest rabbis, both of B'nai Brach and the left-wing Orthodox in Israel. I declared an Easter yichud with the internet. You can't have a yichud seclusion with a woman or a man, nor with the internet. That's almost impossible these days that the internet's in everybody's pocket, in their smartphone. So at the very least, we should try to have filters and aravim, things of this nature, and it's being charged in the living room overnight. The people cannot get addicted to it completely and totally. It's a very serious, serious problem, and every situation is different. What your daughter would think you're crazy. So it depends on your relationship with your daughter and, and, the, and the facts on the ground surrounding you and your daughter. You do the best you can to see to it that the negative aspects of internet and, and Instagram and YouTube, I'm not sure what all these things even mean, will harm your children. That's part of the parental responsibility. And modeling, modeling. If they see you're addicted to the internet and your phone, etc., it's hard to tell them you shouldn't be. Keep that in mind. I just a follow up. I did, there is I, again in general on the chat we weren't going to take, but there's a follow up on inviting um, non-observant family over as guests. What would you have to say about that? How do we? Is there a okay. problem? How do we deal okay. with that? Well, that divides into two. During the week, should certainly invite them. As far as Shabbos is concerned. This is always a problem, a problem. Ramosha Fanchin had a very strict ruling on this matter. He says if you if you invite someone who's going to drive on Shabbos, it's because you're a Macy's, and he gets very strong words to say. Many great rabbis disagree, especially if there's a key of component. One of the rabbis told me in the West Coast, famous key of rabbi, that when he moved to the West Coast, he most significant individual of the youth lived far away. So he called his Rosh Hashiva back in New York, and the Rosh Hashiva said, look, that's the only way you invite the person, you give them a chance to stay over, you know you know they're going to drive back. And through that decision, hundreds of Balei Shuvah exist right now. So we have to be a little bit more open to it than other Rabbanim were because of the positive impact that it can have. It's like anything else. Like anything else. goes back to the ace lassos. What is the cost-benefit ratio? There's a cost having people drive on Shabbos to or, to or from your house. There's a benefit. The benefit can mean what we call in our language, Kiruv, bringing them closer to become Shomer Shabbos. You need an evaluation. You know, It's hard to say in any given case, Everything's usher, everything's mutter. It depends on the circumstances. There was a chance that by, by participating in your beautiful Shabbos table with the Kiddush, with the candles, with the chalas, with the Torah, with the Zmiris, it will have an impact on these individuals, family or not. It's arguable that's a worthwhile investment, that the, the, the benefit, the potential benefit outweighs the cost. Every case has to be a value separate. 
Okay, Rabbi Willig, we reached 9.30, and uh, we pretty much covered all the questions that uh, we decided to filter out. We apologize to those who asked questions, and we simply could not uh, accommodate everyone. As as uh, Donna Margola said, we will, uh, on a on an institutional level, try to field the questions. We might even turn to Rabbi Willig for uh, some input on it in the future. Um, but uh, we just really appreciate this. Um, again, it's been a refreshing and different perspective, especially for our our Israeli alumni. They're you know they're a little bit sometimes insulated from what goes on in America, um, and um, you certainly gave uh, perspectives that uh, are uh, insightful and not always universally agreed upon, which is exactly what makes uh, uh, you know the Darchenoam community really so vibrant. And um, we really appreciate the uh, inspiration and the insights. And um, we'll look forward uh, to hosting you in Yerushalayim at the Yeshiva and at the seminary. Thank you thank very you. much. And thanks to everybody for joining. And thanks to our office staff, uh, to Donna and Margalit, especially the, you know, the, the back end is what makes everything work. Chaim Reifman, our uh, t- technology person. Um, and so thanks to everybody. And um, we can stay on for a few more minutes. We'll let Rabbi Willig go. Um, we, our Zoom meeting can stay on if people want to stay on and schmooze a little bit with each other. Um, and we will let Rabbi Willig go and appreciate the uh, hour and a half that he just gave us. Thank you. Anytime. Bye-bye. <laughs>